On December 26, 1943, Brock Onagurski completed one of the greatest personal comeback stories in sports history. This was during a tumultuous time in the nation and the NFL was one of the only things keeping Americans occupied during World War II. Our guest this week tells of stories during this season that makes us wonder if the NFL would have ever survived if it were not for some of these grizzled veterans coming back into the league. There was even one player that rejoined the league only to find this would be the first time he was forced to wear a helmet, and it all revolved around a team called the Steagles. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off our DeLorean, the date is December 26, 1943, and we are at Chicago's Wrigley Field to witness the Bears beating the Redskins 41-21. On the back of Sid Luckman and his five passing touchdowns and a reborn Bronco Nagurski. Now we still have a special guest riding shotgun with us too. His name is Matthew Elgio. This is the second episode of the interview with Matthew and his research revolving around the 1943 Philadelphia and Pittsburgh combined team known as the Steagles. We left the last episode off by realizing how much the NFL had to change during the years of World War II, and we found out the Eagles finally had their first winning season. Now we get back to the story to find out what happened after 1943, get some cool insights into the players he interviewed, and even let Matthew snag the keys to my DeLorean to take us back in time wherever he wants to go. Now, I do recommend that you listen to episode 65 first if you have not already, because that's the first part of this interview. But while you're at it, you might as well go ahead and mash that little subscribe button in your podcast player of choice, that way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes each and every week. But without further ado, I bring to you the second half of the Matthew Algeo interview. So then, after the 1943 season, we have this team 5-4-1, and one, and it's pretty successful, like you said, the first ever winning season for the Eagles and the second for the Steelers. What did they do in 1944? Did they follow it up with the championship? No. The Eagles owner was a guy named Lex Thompson. He was a young millionaire from New York, and he had gone along with the merger in '43. He was okay with it, but he thought it would be better for the Eagles to go back to being just the Eagles in 44. Lex Thompson made a fortune in selling a brand of eye drops called IG. Okay. So he actually knew a thing or two about branding, about marketing, those kinds of things. This at a time when, like I said, most of the NFL owners just named the team after the baseball team in town. I mean, these, these were not imaginative guys thinking about branding and marketing. Lex Thompson was. He was ahead of his time. He knew that it was important for the Eagles to be their own brand, keep their own colors, keep their own name. So he was not eager to repeat the merger in 44. So he asked to be, for the Eagles to, to be able to fly alone in 44, so to speak. And so the Steelers were still terribly undermanned, so they still had to merge with somebody. So in 44, they merged with the Chicago Cardinals, and they became Card Pit. 
which is one of the worst names you can come up with. They were 0-11, one of the worst teams in NFL history. People called them the carpets because everybody walked all over them. So it, it was really kind of a letdown for the, the Steelers after 43 when they were part of a pretty good team. And then they became this combine with Chicago, which was uh, not a good team at all. Uh, but the Eagles had the basis for a very good team. And they went on, of course, to win NFL championships in 47 and 48 with the core of the team, basically the guys who had played on the Steagles in 43. So it tells you that there was some talent there that just, you know, four years after the Steagles, the uh, Eagles won the NFL championship. So they they had some good players on the Steagles. Uh, Ray Graves was the center. He was he was a, he was an all pro. Uh, Al Wistert played line again both ways. Uh, he was an all pro. Bucko Kilroy uh, was a guy who played was a rookie in '43 for the Eagles. Went on to have a very uh, long and successful NFL career. Then became an executive with the Patriots, like into the into the nineties. He he was with the Patriots, and so they had the core of a good team in Philadelphia. And I think Lex Thompson noticed, you know, realized that too. The owner was like, "We need to develop our team, just as our team can't do the combine again." And so that's what happened in '44. And of course, by '45, now the war is wrapping up, and so uh, players are starting to come back from overseas. And the All-America Football Conference starts as a rival league. If the NFL had not stayed alive through the war, you kind of wonder if they would have survived competition from the AAFC, which was the rival league. And I think that was the Colts and the 49ers, a couple teams that ended up joining the NFL later. So, yeah, they were kind of shifting into post-war mode even by the 45 season. Yeah, and that brings up a good point because in your book it's called Last team standing, how the Steelers and the Eagles saved pro football during World War II. And I think that's the kind of, uh, you know, the publisher wants to have a title that just says something grand. A little catchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I try to get people's attention, exactly. Although I, I would argue that really if, if the Steagles, uh, if, if you don't merge the Steelers and the Eagles in 43, they were very close to canceling the 1943 season. And I think in that way, the Steagles really helped them get through the 43 season. It kept football alive in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh at a very critical time uh, for those franchises. I mean, again, they had been terrible franchises. One winning season between the two of them in, in, you know, since 1933. And so it really reinvigorated people's interest in professional football in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh in 43. And it really solved a lot of problems for the league by the Steelers and the Eagles merging in 43. And so it really, in a way, it helped the NFL bridge, you know, from from Pearl Harbor to the end of World War II to kind of just get through the really the worst, worst part of the war uh, and the worst, the biggest challenges that the NFL faced during the war. So really, in that way, I think they did uh, really help save the NFL. And like I said, if the NFL hadn't survived during the war, it would have been tough to start that back up from scratch after the war. So I think that's why the owners were very eager to keep it going. They knew they had to keep it going. There were some owners who, were, who thought we should just, you know, for the duration of the war, just put everything on the hiatus. But the big owners, Hallis, Mara, George Preston Marshall, these guys all insisted that the league had to keep going. And I think they were right. 
if that if the league hadn't kept going, it would have been real, real tough after the war for it to to start up again. Yeah, and you spoke of Hallis. I knew he was overseas. How many other coaches, players, and that kind of thing were overseas? There were two co-owners of the of the uh, Cleveland Rams. Uh, they were overseas. Lex Thompson, the Eagles owner. He was uh, he was in the army. He was at a base in in the south, I think, in North Carolina. So the GM kind of ran the team. The Brooklyn Dodgers were an amazing case. Uh, they had a, their owner, I think, it was a guy named Dan Topping, but he he was he was at war. Nobody even knew where he was. <laughs> the uh, so the GM just ran the team. Uh, they hired a guy, Pete Cawthon, to be the head coach in the summer of '43. They had zero players under contract. Pete Cawthon put an ad in newspapers nationwide looking for football players. He used to, he was, he, he had previously coached at Texas Tech. One of his old players saw this and got a bunch of guys together. Basically, the 1943 Brooklyn Dodgers NFL team was just a bunch of guys who had played at Texas Tech in the 30s and 40s. So th- this is how, so yeah, so the Dodgers owner was gone. Hallis. Hallis was able to finagle, you know, I think he was, uh, he was overseas for a time, but during the season, he was usually close enough to Chicago that at least he could come in for league meetings and stuff like that. I should mention a couple of the players on the, on the uh, Steagles were active duty uh, NFL. I mean, uh, uh, active duty military. Uh, there was a guy, Rocco Canali, and he was uh, based in New York and he had a, a commanding officer who was very sympathetic and liked football, so he would get a pass every weekend to go play. Bucko Kilroy, he was in the Merchant Marine, which wasn't the armed forces, but was still a very important uh, service during the war. They, they're the guys that, that you know, protected all the cargo ships, and uh, so he would get stationed in New York as well, so he could play during the, during the season. I mean, there were these crazy stories you hear that they would never happen today. I mean, it's, just, it's insane. You know, they, when you hear about the guys who uh, were in the military and still playing pro football full time, it's just crazy. Yeah. Also, in some of my research, I found that players were moonlighting too. They were they had jobs to support the war efforts, and they were playing at the same time. Yeah. In fact, the the Steagles owners, Lex Thompson, Art Rooney, and Burt Bell, they actually required the Steagles players to to work full time in factories in uh, in philadelphia or pittsburgh during the season and so they would practice uh, a couple nights a week and then on saturdays and then they would play the games on sundays so a lot of these guys uh, worked full-time jobs outside of outside of football you have to remember too football at the time i mean you might get 50 or 100 dollars a game you know these guys weren't making a very good living playing professional football at the time and so a lot of them worked full-time outside of the game by necessity. They had to, to support their families, that sort of thing. And of course, you know that like even into the, the 60s and 70s, I mean, on the backs of football cards, they would show what the guy's off-season job was. Everybody had an off-season job. You know, that's how they, they made extra money. And so it was really that way in 43. And of course, there was so much demand for workers. The other good thing was if you were working in a you know, in, in a war factory that was making weapons or munitions, that sort of thing, you were protected from the draft because you were working in an essential industry. So it was not only good, you know, this policy of having the football players also work was not only good for 
public relations and the players could make extra money. It also had the uh, positive effect of protecting them a little bit more from, from getting drafted. So that brings up a good point. Do you think that that crossed the minds of some of the NFL owners saying that, hey, we can keep some of these players here over in the home front because of this? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Sammy Ball, he was, he was a, a father. He owned a farm, and uh, farmers were often deferred from the draft. And he was a part-time police officer in his hometown, which is another occupation that could be deferred from the draft. So the owners knew this when they were putting teams together. You wanted to find guys who, uh, who were not going to get drafted. You know, look for a guy who's a father, look for a guy who, you know, is 4F, that sort of thing, because the, the turnover on the rosters was incredible. There was something like, you know, the Steelers only had, I forget what it was, like four guys who were on the team at 42 and 43. It was just insane. The whole rosters would just be wiped out in, in, in a matter of weeks when the draft came or, you know, and in Pittsburgh, if you're all living in the same neighborhood and the draft board calls up. 40 guys, well, eight of them might be Steelers, <laughs> you know? So it, it, it would just, it would, you'd just be wiped out and like that quickly. And so there was so much turnover. So yeah, the owners were really conscious about that. They wanted to, they wanted to find guys. That was the good thing about having the older, you know, bringing back people like Bill Hewitt and uh, Nagurski that like they were old, too old to be drafted. And so it was perfect for the NFL. They were cognizant of that. Sure. So with the crazy amount of turnover, and you said earlier how the NFL had record attendance. What type of a brand of football was on the field at that time, you think? Oh, uh, I think Sammy Ball once said it probably set the league back about 10 years in, uh, in, in terms of, 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 you know, the level of play. Uh, football had gotten really, really good, especially when Hallis brought in the T formation in the late thirties and other teams began adopting it. You saw a lot of forward passing, that sort of thing. Um, it definitely hurt. Uh, the, it was good for the quarterbacks. I'll say that you see the quarterback statistics got real good during the war because defensive play suffered, I would say much more than offensive play during the war. You lost a lot of speed during the war. The players got older. Players were more likely to be injured. So, yeah, the quality of play was not up to what it had been before the war. But people were so desperate for entertainment during World War II. And you're working six hours or six days a week, probably 10 hours a day. Everything's rationed. You can't drive out to the country. Uh, you know, there's so many things you can't do anymore. And so I think people were so desperate for entertainment that they were willing to put up with the reduction in the quality of, of the football just to enjoy a couple hours at the stadium on a, on a Sunday afternoon in the autumn. And um, I think in a way you begin to get the beginnings of the whole the NFL. An NFL game is kind of an event that the game itself is just a part of that event, you know, the tailgating, that sort of thing. I think that's kind of where you see the beginning of this. People just want to be entertained and, and they're willing to to live with the fact that it's not the greatest football in the world, but it's still fun to watch. So 
were college football players exempt from the draft if they were in college at the time? No. There was no college deferment during World War II. And in fact, most college programs were suspended uh, for the operation of the war. College football pretty much ground to a halt during World War II, except for the programs that, had, that were associated with military officer training programs. Obviously, Army and Navy football were huge during the war because, you know, they had lots of players. And, and there were schools like Michigan that had a huge um, affiliation with officer training. So a lot of players got sent to Michigan. Michigan had a big program during the war. Um, a lot of the schools in the Big Ten and on the East Coast benefited from the fact that a lot of players who were drafted might be sent for officer training to a college that had a program. And while they were at the college, they could play football. But by and large, there was no nothing like what you would see today, which made it even harder for the NFL to get players, obviously. I mean, I forget, in the 1943 draft of the, the first 20 players, I think two ended up playing in the 1943 season. I mean, they just didn't, they, they just all disappeared. Uh, there was no, you know, uh, there was no stock of players to call on. And so it, that made it even more difficult. You, have, you hear stories about guys. There was a guy who tried out for the Steagles who had played on the uh, prison team in Iowa, in the state prison, who apparently had a reputation as a great passer and came and, and played. And the uh, Steagles' backup quarterback was a guy named Ali Sherman, who was went to Brooklyn College at 16 years old, graduated when he was 20, had a perforated eardrum, so he was 4F. Small guy, I forget what he was, like 5'6", but played quarterback. And so that was the kind of kind of player he had. Ali Sherman went on. He coached the uh, Giants in the early 60s, all those Giants teams that ended up losing to Lombardi in the NFL championship game every year. But Ali Sherman went on to a pretty successful career as a coach. Yeah, so it was just everything was kind of distorted. The old pipeline of college players got shut off. And so they had to look everywhere for players. How much do you think that contributed to the power shift from the college ranks to the professional football starting to take over in America. Do you think that was at all a contributing factor? It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I mean, now that you mention it, yeah, I, because the NCAA, or it was the NCAA, I guess, but because college football basically disappeared during the war, it definitely lost, lost ground to the NFL, no doubt about it. And then what happened after the war, then you had all these guys on the GI Bill going to college, but they're now in their mid to late 20s. <laughs> there are these, these huge guys. It was this weird thing where, like, you know, guys would, would go to college now and they'd, I mean, they'd been to war and they'd seen action, people shooting at them. So it, it, it kind of changed the college game right after the war. And so, yeah, it definitely, it definitely changed things. And it definitely changed things, I think, a little bit in favor of the, of the NFL, that it was continuing, that it was able to continue through the war while college football kind of disappeared. And then when it reappeared, it was so different that I think that really um, had an impact on how the two kind of related to each other. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll never know, but I just wonder if professional football would have still been, maybe by now they would have taken over, but like if it would have taken longer than that 1958 championship game for them to really say, okay, we're here, we're the top dogs, and it's just something that would be interesting to go back to and check out. Yeah, you could do some really interesting, you know, alternate histories looking at if the NFL had not played during the war or if the college game had actually continued during the war, that sort of thing. Yeah, who knows? That's actually a good transition into one of my questions I'd like to talk to you about, a alternate reality, a alternate history kind of thing. By no means do I want another war, a great war to happen. But let's just say, for instance, it happened right now and not a nuclear wasteland. I wonder, what do you think that would do because college exemption would exist possibly, do you think that would possibly change it back around? I I don't know. I think, um, you know, it's interesting to look back at the NFL during Vietnam. And the NFL had a lot more players serve in Vietnam per capita than Major League Baseball did. Tons of Vietnam vets, you know, people who played in the NFL and, and served in Vietnam. If there was a situation like that today, I just can't imagine with the money at stake now that either the pro or college game would be that affected. I, I just I can't imagine. I mean, it's it's like, you know, if you look at it with World War II, the NFL is now sort of like what General Motors was, you know, in World War II. I mean, you know, it's a... $10, billion industry that, you know, you're not going to just say, oh, it's sorry, we've got to shut you down. Same way with the NCAA. Not to mention that the political clout now that the NFL has that it, it didn't have in 1943. So I, I don't know. It do, that does remind me, though, one of the great stories that I asked Al Wister, who was played for the Steagles in 43. And I asked him, what would happen if you played an NFL team from today. The Steagles, 43, played an NFL team today. And Al said, well, if you played by the rules we had where everybody had to play 60 minutes, you know, just the same 11 guys the whole game, he said at the end of the first quarter, the modern team would be winning 100 to nothing. But by halftime, they'd all be dead. Because, because these guys now are, you know, 310 pounds Al Wister was, I want to say, he was 5'10", 200. He was a lineman. But these guys had to be in such good shape because you're also running kickoffs, hunts. You're playing offense, defense. You've got to be in incredible you know, anaerobic shape to do this. It was just insane the shape these guys were in. And uh, yeah, and so it's just like so, so different today than it was back then. I mean, you were a 200 pound lineman back then, it was a big guy. And, you know, now quarterback's got to be 200 pounds. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, he's not making it too long. <laughs> yeah. He's going to get killed. So, uh, yeah. So I thought that was a good example of, you know, of how the, of how the game had changed and, and Al's, Al's perception of that. I would love to see a game played, you know, with the old rules of having to play the same 11 guys 
you know how they do old baseball, like the guys who play 1890s baseball rules. You ever seen these guys? They play with bare hands. Yeah, there's a guy at work. He is, I don't know what they call it, the past timers or the old timers or whatever with the baggy pants and such. I would love to see that with football, like to, just to see what the game looks like when these guys have to play both ways for the whole game, which would be really be interesting. Because like I said, the size, you can't do it. You're 300 pounds. And these guys play. You see them coming out after four downs. They're exhausted. So yeah, it'd be really interesting. Yeah, it'd also be interesting to see some of the guys that they're so specialized in, let's just say wide receiver, but now you have to go to the defensive side where it's a totally different ball game. And back then that was normal. You just played, like you said, every single down. What did uh, Sammy Ball led the league in, uh, I don't know if it was in 43, it was one of the years in the early 40s where he led the league in punting average, touchdown passes, and interceptions. The true triple threat, triple crown dude. It's <laughs> <laughs> a triple, yeah. Why the triple crown? It's like, come on, man. You lead the league in, in uh, touchdown passes thrown and interceptions caught. And, you know, I didn't even think about this when I had my Sammy Ball episode, but you brought up a good point earlier how the quarterback had the advantage. Because of the type of play, do you think, with him being the quarterback, that's one reason why he led the league in his interceptions? Yeah, I mean, he um, he definitely benefited. I mean, he, he would be the first to admit it, man. He knew that uh, the defense wasn't as good as it had been before the war. And uh, so he, he definitely benefited there. He was good at on defense, too, because the guy had played forever. You know, he was already like 10 years in the league by 43. And so he had so much more experience than any of the other players. It was, it was almost unfair, some of these guys who played during the war, who were kind of the grizzled veterans. That time. I tried to interview Sammy. Sammy was still alive when I started the book in 03, 04, and uh, sent a letter to him. I got a very nice letter back from his daughter who explained that he had dementia, and so he wasn't able to do anything. He lived a long time. He lived into his 90s. Yeah, he didn't he end up down in Texas riding his old pickup truck and saying, I'm in the country and I don't want to deal with anything or something like that? Yeah, he, God love him. I mean, that's, he had the kind of retirement I want to have, you know? He just went back to the farm, did what he loved. Yeah, he had a good long life, too. For you, for retirement, though, I mean, you said you're moving to Bosnia in July and you've been all over the world. <laughs> what does retirement look like for someone like you? <laughs> Well, you'd have to ask my wife. I've, I've already retired more or less. She has the real job. She works for the State Department. She's a foreign service officer. So uh, so we move around to wherever she gets assigned. So we've been around a lot, but it's been it's been good for me. I've written, uh, just finished my sixth book, and uh, none of them have been runaway bestsellers, but it uh, makes me a little bit of money and keeps me busy. It's a very transportable thing, too. I can pretty much do it anywhere. So I've been lucky like that to be able to like really dig into these stories and spend a lot of time researching them and writing about them. And uh, I really couldn't do it, you know, on my own without support. So yeah, so we're going to be moving to Sarajevo in uh, in July, and so I'll have to see if there are any interesting stories there. There must be. Oh, I'm sure there is. I mean, just like in the bio that I had for you talking about your books, I I brought it up again how they are 
obscurely intriguing. And if you have an inquisitive mind that gets sucked into thought-provoking stories, then I suggest you check this work out. And that is definitely the case. And I'm going to have to ask you a question a little bit later about one of the books I have an interesting peak of interest about. But I wanted to, before we get to that point, Let's go ahead and ask you this. You said you interviewed Al Wister and you unfortunately were not able to interview Sammy Baugh, you know, good old Sling and Sammy, but was Al Wister your favorite interview or did you have another guy that gave you something out? Uh, Al Wister was a good one. I actually went out and saw him. He lives in Oregon. We lived in Oregon. Al's passed away. They've all passed away now. It's funny, nine, nine were alive when the book came out in 06 and now, uh, now they're all gone. Al was a lot of fun. He was uh, he was a real hoot. Uh, Bucko Kilroy was another uh, another character. He was uh, boy, you talk about stories uh, that these guys had. Bucko Kilroy once Life magazine called him the dirtiest player in the NFL, and he sued him and won <laughs> for ten thousand uh, dollars. So he was a good one. Uh, Ted Doyle, I talked to in Nebraska. He had tons of stories where he uh, it was funny. Ted. Ted Doyle, he, uh, he went to Nebraska, and he got offered a job working for Hormel, the meatpacking company. But he needed money fast, and the Steelers gave him a $100 signing bonus, I think. And so he decided to play pro football. And I think to this day, he, he had thought he probably should have taken the job at Hormel instead but he would have. It was like, I could have been, you know, middle management by the time I retired from the Steelers. But he was, he was, all of them were really, uh, really cool guys. But yeah, Al and Bucko and uh, Jack Hinkle was another one. Jack Hinkle was the running back. Jack Hinkle actually got screwed out of the NFL rushing title in 1943 because they had, I think it was a 43-yard run that got misattributed to a different running back. And he ended up losing the rushing title by a yard. So for years, his kids petitioned the NFL to correct this, but they never, uh, never did correct it. But uh, he lived in suburban Philadelphia. And there's another guy, Jim Gallagher, who was not a player for the Steagles, but was uh, a very young, well, he wasn't even an executive. His guy sold tickets. He ended up becoming, I think, vice president of public relations or something for the Eagles in the, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but he was another, uh, he was another great interview. The one thing I regret that never occurred to me, I should have gotten an official NFL ball. Yeah. I know. And had each of them sign it when I interviewed them. And I, I don't know why, what I was thinking. And I mean, you don't want to be like, hey, hey, can I get your, you know, you're trying to be cool about it. And you're in their house now. But now I look back and I was like, oh my God, just for, you know, my personal and like leave it for my kid or whatever. But it'd be like, wow, it'd be really cool to have. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure they would have all been willing and they would all love to do it for you, too, considering the historic season that was the Steagles and just something I had personally never heard about until I randomly was performing some research and I saw the term Steagles. I thought it was a misprint. I'll be honest with you. I'm like, I got to dig into this a little bit. So then, of course, you know, I start researching and that's how I found you. And you have some wildly entertaining stories and with that being said, of all the interviews and research and all that kind of thing that you did, what was the most, uh, let's use the word, unique and maybe shocking story that you had in all your research? That's tough. But one thing that comes to mind is I talked to Vic Sears. He was a Steagles back 
But there was something interesting he told me because he said back then they had an unwritten rule that if a guy was running out of bounds and you're on offense and you're playing defense and you have a chance to cream him, if you're at home, it's acceptable to cream him because that gets the crowd all riled up. But if you're on the road, you just push him out of bounds because that saved wear and tear on everybody. There were all these unwritten rules about how you would play the game and behave and everything back then that really had never occurred to me. You know, because if you're if you're on the home team and you hit a guy hard and it gets the crowd, that's acceptable. But what's the point in hitting a guy hard when you're the visiting team? They're just going to boo you anyway. It was like, I guess, the kind of the unwritten code that I had never imagined even existed. And, and so I thought that was really interesting. I thought also, you know, what Al Wistard said about how the game had changed so much, you know, between going to the day of the 60-minute men to the game of today. And um, how much the uh, the professional game has improved over the years. You know, they used to play, there would be a college all-star team would play the defending NFL champion in Chicago every year before the season began. It was a big, huge exhibition game. And in the 30s and 40s, the college team would win all the time. And then, of course, after the war, the pro team started winning so much that by the 70s, they just canceled the whole thing. It wasn't even worth doing. It. But it just goes to show you that the college all-star team could beat the defending NFL champions. <laughs> it's quite an accomplishment. So uh, that was pretty wild just to kind of conceive of that. It's like, wow. And Al Wister talked about, and you had asked before about what it was like for the young, you know, the rookies joining the team. Al Wister played football at Michigan, man. He played for uh, Fritz Chrysler and these manicured fields and he went to Philadelphia for the first training camp in 43, and he couldn't believe it. They were just playing on a rocky field at St. Joseph's College, and as he said, the locker was so narrow, they had to stand the shoes up, you know, on the toes to get them in. He'd never, he thought he was moving up, and then he got to Philadelphia, and he just said, this was nothing like Michigan. You know, Michigan was immaculate. And so uh, it really was interesting learning about how different things were back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, that just goes to show Modern day NFL players have no idea what it was like back then. And that's not even just the war speaking. There's all those other things. No, and I, I have a lot of sympathy, you know, for the guys who, you know, are fighting for some kind of compensation, uh, the older veterans especially, you know, because these guys really, they set the stage for what the league has become. And I, I think the NFL does a pretty good job. I think it could do a much better job of honoring it its history, its past. I think baseball does a better job than football. But this year is the 100th season, I guess, the 100th season of the NFL. And I think they have a lot of uh, events planned for that. So hopefully it'll get people inspired and interested in the history of, you know, what's America's most popular sport, you know? I think it's worth looking at the history of it. Yeah, not to be selfish, but I hope it works out too, considering my it's called the Football History Dude podcast. But um, with that being said, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, I could go on for days talking to you about anything in the NFL. You've done so much research, and it's just intriguing and interesting to hear the different stories. But one thing I like to ask people, it's a hypothetical question. So my podcast, one thing is based on the premise of Back to the Future. Every week, we take the listener in my DeLorean. We're going to get that baby up to 88 miles an hour. We're going to go back in time. 
And with that being said, I'd like to ask you this question. It does not have to be around the Steagles because, of course, we've been all over that. But if I were to take you and give you the keys to my DeLorean, you can go back in time any point in history. You cannot change the outcome. This is not a Marty McFly moment. But where would you go? What time? And what would you do? Well, I mean, come on. You got to go see what Jesus was about. I think, first of all, if I could go back, yeah, I'd probably want to see what Jesus was like. But more in terms of American history, I would probably like the late 19th century. I think that would have been a really interesting time. I wouldn't want to waste it on something where there are people alive still who remember the time you're going back to, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, if there are people I could ask, like, well, what was that like? You know, that's not as good, obviously, but you kind of get a sense of it, at least if there are people still alive who were there. So, yeah. So I guess my two places would be Judea year zero and the United States in 1893. But boy, I need more time to think about that. Yeah, it's an unfair question to throw you on the spot and everything like that. But um, Or, okay, uh, maybe Roswell, 1947. Oh, yeah, that'd be a good one to go to. See if that UFO was real, <laughs> yeah. So the late 19th century brings me to another topic as we get close to wrapping up here. I wanted to ask you, what the heck is pedestrianism? Well, Pedestrianism is something I actually learned about while I was researching the Stiegel's book because I wanted to do some research on kind of the history of spectator sports in America and how, you know, obviously pro football was not very popular until the middle of the 20th century, basically. And I was looking back at some other popular spectator sports and was very surprised to find that in the 1880s, uh, really the mid-1870s to the late 1880s, the most popular spectator sport in the U.S. was pedestrianism, which is competitive walking, specifically six-day walking matches. And so what you do is you would go to uh, a big arena like Madison Square Garden, and they would scratch out a, a small track on the floor. On the, they would cover it with dirt and lay out a track that would be maybe like oh an eighth of a mile. And uh, guys would just walk around and around and around for six days. You couldn't do anything on Sunday because, of course, it's against the law to have any sort of public amusements on the Sabbath. And so these races would begin Sunday night, Monday morning, right at right after midnight, 12.01 a.m. Monday, and go straight through all six days right up to midnight Saturday night, 11.59 p.m. Saturday. And these guys would just walk as far as they could for days and days, and some of them would do 500 or 550 miles in, in six days, and they'd be exhausted and bedraggled and delirious by, you know, lack of sleep for, uh, you know, by the end of the second or third day, and people would just stream into the arenas and, and watch these guys, and there'd be bands playing and people selling, you know, pickled eggs and other concessions. It was just a crazy, crazy scene. Talk about uh, people who were desperate for entertainment. I think in the 1880s and 1890s, you know, people are moving into the cities. Countries getting industrialized. People from the country moving into the city, but we still don't have phonographs or, uh, you know, movies or obviously radio or television or anything like that. So 
any kind of live entertainment was in such high demand. And for a brief time, these guys were like the most famous athletes in, in the country. So yeah, it had its uh, beginnings for me, the, the story, researching uh, spectator sports in, in America where I was doing the Stiegel's book and it sort of stuck in my head. And then I went back and, and did some research. It's really, it's, it's an interesting, and you know, we still have these, you know, six day races, there's, they still have in ultras, of course, or of all different lengths and varieties. And so it's still with us in a way. Yeah. And that's another one of his books. And you can get this book, the Stegos book, and many more on the show notes. And I'll provide links for all of you guys out there. And where can the fans of this show find you if they wanted to find out more about you, Matthew? MattAlgeo.com. M-A-T-T-A-L-G-E-O.com. And I'll be providing a link of that in the show notes as well. That'd be great. Yeah. And uh, good luck with the podcast. I think it's a great, like I said, I, I really wish there was more attention paid to the history of football, especially professional football in the U.S. I think a lot of people are ignorant about all that has led up to the NFL becoming what it is today. And so uh, hopefully, like I said, with the 100th anniversary, the 100th season coming up, uh, people will begin thinking a little bit more. And uh, the Hall of Fame in Canton is a great place if you ever get a chance to go there. Oh, sure. And uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on, riding shotgun with me back to December 7th, 1941. We get this crazy journey going with the Steels and everything else. And are there any parting words of wisdom, knowledge nuggets you want to drop on the fans of the show? No, buy my books. Well, there you go. Buy his books. Enough said. And like I said at the beginning of the last episode, if you are into wildly intriguing books and you have an inquisitive mind for thought-provoking topics, then I highly suggest that you dive right into the page I created for him on my site. Just like Bronco Nagurski diving right into that line to get the Bears to the 1943 championship game. And you can get there by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com slash Matthew Algeo. That's Matthew A-L-G-E-O. Again, head to thefootballhistorydude.com slash Matthew Algeo for a list of all of his books. And I truly hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Football History Dude. And I want to thank Matthew Algeo for dropping golden knowledge nuggets all over the gridiron. Also, I cannot thank him enough for being the first guest on this show. But next week, we are lucky enough to have another passenger riding shotgun on our DeLorean. We will talk to Upton Bell, the son of Burt Bell, the founder of the Philadelphia Eagles and first great commissioner of the NFL. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.